Chapter 8 of Tales from Ariosto by Joseph Shield Nicholson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Tales from Ariosto by Joseph Shield Nicholson. Chapter 8 Zerbino and Isabella. Now it chanced, after Orlando, in his black armour, had routed the forces of the two pagan kings with great slaughter, he came at nightfall to a hill, and from a cleft in the side there streamed out a gleam of light, and following the beam Orlando came on a great cavern, the mouth of which had been concealed with branches and bushes. When he had tied up his horse, Brilliadoro, Orlando quickly cleared the mouth of the cave, and by a steep descent he came into a spacious rocky chamber. Here he saw seated near a blazing fire a young maiden of about sixteen years, most beautiful to look upon in spite of the grief in her countenance and the tears in her eyes. Near the maiden was an old woman, wrinkled, sallow, and surly in aspect, who was plainly scourging the young maiden with her tongue. On the sight of Orlando, the belle-dame stopped her rating and gave him a churlish salutation. Orlando, much astonished, asked the beautiful young maiden how she came to be weeping in such a place and in such company, and thereupon she told him her story. Her name, she said, was Isabella, and long, long ago, so it seemed in her distress, her father, the Saracen king of Galicia, had held a great tournament, and as was usual in the days of courtesy, he had invited knights both pagan and Christian. Amongst the foreign guests was Zerbino, the son of the King of Scotland. Of all the knights in the tournament, he was the most courteous and generous, and none surpassed him in bravery. Between Isabella and Zerbino a great love sprang up, but their union was hindered by the difference in religion. So great, however, was their love, that when Zerbino was summoned by his old father to lead the Scottish levies to the aid of Charlemagne, he devised a plan with Isabella, whereby she might join him and become a Christian and his wife. The carrying out of the plan was entrusted to Orderico, a Biscayan, and thought by Zerbino to be his most faithful and devoted friend. According to this plan, Isabella was to be made a willing captive and carried off to a ship, as if by a band of sea-rovers. The scene was duly acted, and Orderico, with some of his trusty followers, conveyed Isabella to the vessel, and they escaped. Soon after, however, a sudden storm arose, and with great danger, the lady with Orderico and two of Zerbino's followers escaped to the shore in a boat. The place was wild and desolate and distant about two leagues, as they guessed, from Rochelle, the nearest city. Of the two followers of Zerbino, one of Scottish blood, by name Almonio, was urged by Orderico to go for succour for the lady, and he gladly undertook the task. But scarcely had he gone when Orderico approached the other, by name Corebo, a native of Bilbao, who had been his companion and friend from boyhood and he made him know that he had himself become madly in love with Isabella, and was determined to make her his own. 
Confident in his old friendship, he laid bare his heart to Corebo. But he, being a man of noble birth and great soul, no sooner heard than he assailed Orderico for his breach of faith and friendship, and tried to turn him from his evil passion, but in vain. Then Orderico, relying on his skill in arms, attacked Corebo, and Isabella fled to the woods. Not long did the fight endure, and the traitor, leaving the true man for dead, pursued Isabella, and in a little time had overtaken her. At first he tried every blandishment and all manner of flatteries and inventions, but when he found his wooing was of no avail, and that her horror only increased, he let the brute in his nature break through altogether. Like a satyr of the woods, in the woods he seized her, and loudly she cried out for help, and with the frenzy of outraged nature fought with the beast-like man. Suddenly, when her strength was failing, there came in sight going down the hill to the shore a band of wreckers attracted by the broken ship. As soon as Orderico noticed that they had heard her cries and were turning towards them, his fear became the greater passion, and he fled. The wreckers, deeming Isabella a great prize by her beauty and rich attire, conveyed her to the cave and left her in charge of the old woman. And here, so the king's daughter told Orlando, had she remained a prisoner for over eight months, saved and kept unharmed for her selling value. As he came in, the old woman was telling her that a bargain had been struck, and that she was to be handed over to the soldan to be his hundredth wife. Scarcely had Isabella finished her story when there came down into the cave the rabble of wreckers armed with clubs and swords and spears. The leader, by nature of a horrid aspect, had been more deformed by the loss of an eye and a great cut across cheek and nose. As soon as he saw Orlando, he turned with brutal jesting to his followers and said, Here is a fine bird caught without any net. And to Orlando he said, Surely no guest was ever so welcome. Long have I sought for such fine arms, and it is indeed kind of you to bring them to me unasked. Not long did the ruffian survive his jest, for Orlando, scorning to use his sword, seized from the fire a burning log, and hurled it straight into the face of the robber, and sent him blinded to his death. Then, taking in his mighty hands a huge table, at which the wreckers had been wont to sit at meat, a square mass of rough, unpolished timber, resting on rude, shapeless legs, Orlando raised it up and threw it upon the crowd of bandits, and it fell upon them as falls a big stone cast by a shepherd on a brood of serpents, and some were crushed outright, and some, maimed and mangled, crept away to die. The remnant, seven in number, who had escaped this peril, crowded to the narrow entrance, and Orlando caught them and bound them with their own cords and dragged them out to the open. There he hanged them by the neck and left them a prey to the fowls of the air. But he allowed the old woman to go free. Now the name of this old woman was Gabrina, and she was one of the worst of the wicked, and before she came to live in the cave of the wreckers, she had been wife to a noble lord and lived in a great castle. 
but before old age came upon her through lust for his friend she had caused him to be murdered by that friend in a very cunning manner and thereafter she had forced the friend to make her his wife and him also she had caused to be murdered in a very cunning manner and if orlando had known her true story he would have hanged her also with the wreckers or in some way have put an end to her wickedness and well she knew her own deserts and she fled by devious paths and hid away from the approach of honest men as a murderess is wont to do but at last in her flight she came to a rough river which she could not cross there she lay in wait till she saw riding up a knight whose armour showed that he came from a distant country and gabrina put on a piteous look of innocence and distress and asked the knight of his charity to put her across the river and the knight looked twice at this ill-disguised piece of sinfulness but his courtesy prevailed and he put gabrina behind him and after they had crossed the river he carried her on his horse through a broad marsh and just as they came to the firm land of the forest they saw riding towards them a knight and a gaily dressed lady now this knight was pinabello and he also was of the order of the crafty wicked ones and his story is also full of treachery and his lady was well suited to her mate and save in her finery and palfrey was a thing of naught and even her name has been forgotten by the story-tellers as soon as this well-dressed young wanton saw the ancient ill-clad sinner riding behind a very fine youthful knight she could not stop her laughter and jests but the knight who had played the ferryman out of courtesy was little used to ill-mannered jests and turning fiercely on pinabello challenged him to fight and in case of defeat to give up the horse and the gaudy dress of his lady and out of very shame pinabello could not refuse the challenge and wheeling round rode back and prepared to charge likewise the unknown knight disencumbered himself of his unlovely burden and made ready for the meeting pinabello aimed full at the centre of the shield but as well might he have smitten a rock the unknown with finer skill and firmer strength aimed at the helmet of pinabello and hitting the mark hurled him senseless to the ground thereupon he bade gabrina deck herself in the lady's fine dress and leaving the frightened wanton to look after her stunned companion he set the old woman on the palfrey and they rode away into the forest for three days they journeyed together so great was the courtesy of the foreign knight and so cunning in her tale of woe was gabrina and on the fourth day they met a knight riding in haste and in wrath who was no other than zerbino the prince of scotland he had lost himself in the forest in the vain pursuit of the caitiff who had struck down medoro now when zerbino saw so young a knight escorting so withered a lady dressed up in all the latest finery of wantonness despite his wrath and weariness and despite his courtesy for of all the peers of Charlemagne he was the most courteous he looked into the eyes of the foreign knight and smiled and seeing therein only a feigning of wrath he complimented him on his great prudence in the choice of his lady for whom he need fear no rival the unknown 
being always desirous to test the skill and courage of another, defended his lady with fitting extravagance, and challenged Zerbino to fight for her overpowering beauty. And after an exchange of knightly courtesies, it was agreed between the two knights that the loser in the joust should take the lady, and should be bound by his honour to conduct her with the utmost courtesy wheresoever she listed. Bitterly angry was Gabrina to be made the sport of such a wager. The knights rode apart and then turned and met in full career. Again the unknown aimed at the helm, and again his antagonist was hurled to the ground, the stranger being unarmed. Then, with a laughing farewell, the unknown rode away, and Zerbino was left to do his knightly devoir by the garish old lady. And when the unknown had disappeared into the forest, Zerbino asked the unpleasing companion, who had been forced upon him, what was the name and lineage of the foreign knight? And the ill-favoured lady, with malicious eagerness, replied, No, Sir Knight, that you have been unhorsed by a virgin warrior who has come from the east to try the valour of the paladins of France. And Zerbino blushed with shame, and so great was the shame it seemed to the knight that his very armour tingled and blushed red, and he mounted his steed and in silence escorted the evil old woman. Now the maiden knight who had overthrown Zerbino was a warrior who had already achieved great renown in deeds of arms, by name Marfisa, and, as told in another story, she was the only sister of Ruggiero, and had been stolen away in infancy, and had become a queen in a far country beyond India. Many are the stories related of her before she comes into the pages of the divine Ariosto. Her entry on the scene at the great siege of Albraca revealed at once her fearless prowess, the old king Galafrone had brought to the relief of Angelica, his daughter, three armies, and the third was led by Marfisa. And when they had come within touch of the hostile forces of Agrican the Tartar, and were on the eve of battle, Marfisa retired to her tent, and to her maid she said, If the first army is put to flight it matters not, and if the second under Galafrone is broken, let it break. But if my army begins to give ground, then you may awaken me. And thereupon she fell into a quiet sleep. But most of all, she loved to ride alone in search of adventures. Deer and doves go in bands, she said, for they are of the timorous kind. But the falcon and the eagle and the lion and the tiger and birds and beasts that know no fear go alone. And of such courage is mine. But as with all good knights, her courtesy was equal to her courage, and her thought was as quick as lightning, and in a moment she gave free rein to anger or kindness, and only by her deeds can her character be known. Now Gabrina was much angered with Zerbino, because he had made a jest of her with Marfisa, and because he refused to converse as they rode along. And taking note of his arms, and mien, and bearing, and hearing words he spoke to himself in his distress, she knew that he was the lover of Isabella. For often had Isabella spoken of him when she first came to the cave of the wreckers, and when she thought in her simplicity that any woman would aid in her escape. 
When Cabrina discovered that the knight was indeed Zerbino, the lover of Isabella, she glowered upon him and cried out, Little you think that if I liked I could tell you much of your lost love, and had you been kindly you should have heard. It is but a little time ago I parted from your dear Isabella. And then the knight began to soothe Cabrina, and entreat her to tell him what she knew and where his lady was, and how she had escaped the shipwreck. And when Gabrina saw that he was quite at her mercy, she said to him, Isabella indeed lives, but better had she been dead, for, look you, she was taken by outlaws, and a score of them have shared her beauty. And Zerbino, in anger, forgot his promise, and gave her the lie, and drew his dagger, and threatened to kill her on the spot, if she did not instantly reveal where the lady was. But Gabrina kept a sullen silence and the knight remembered that she had been put in his charge, and again they rode on without a word. And at this point in the story, the divine poet displays in two noble stanzas the binding force of knightly honour in the days of courtesy, and tells how the word once given, if only with the trees of the forest for witnesses, is as binding as if supported by an oath in a full assembly. And the Scottish prince, was of unstainable honour. Of Zerbino it was said that nature, after she had fashioned him, broke the mould. As the sun was sending lengthening shadows from the west, there came in view a knight with two squires, and as soon as Gabrina saw him, she knew him for Hermonides, the brother of her second murdered husband, and she let fall her sullenness and fawned on Zerbino with a lying tale and told how this knight had murdered her father and brother, and had vowed to slay her and all her kin. She begged of Zerbino to remember his pledge to be her knight. And Zerbino answered, Woman, I am your champion, fear not. But as soon as Hermonides had recognised Gabrina, he cried out, Give me that murderess to die at my hand, or refuse at the peril of your life. And Zerbino replied, that if need be he would fight, and that no true knight would stain his hand with the blood of a woman. And after a useless parley they met in full charge, and the lance of Zerbino pierced through the other's buckler and wounded him in the shoulder, grievously, but not to the death. And Zerbino quickly dismounted and gave him help and staunched the wound, and when he had recovered from his fall he said mournfully to Zerbino, it grieves me but little to be worsted by a better knight, but much it grieves me that you should be a prey to this woman. If you only knew you would give her up to a just death, listen to me and look on this woman's face and read her guilt. And thereupon he told Zerbino the story that is told in another place of the wicked murders done by Gabrina. But even this tale of guilt could not absolve Zerbino from his knightly pledge, and leaving the wounded Hermonides in charge of his two squires, he rode away with Gabrina still under his protection. And as they rode, they heard through the trees the sound of fighting, followed by a sudden silence, and pricking forward, they found a knight newly slain, with so many wounds that it seemed as if he had been assailed by a hundred foes. Much grieved was the Scottish knight, for he thought that the dead man had been murdered in foul play, and he rode in pursuit of the supposed assassins. 
but the dead man was in truth only Pinabello, who was fated to be as deceitful in death as in life. For he had been slain in single combat by Bradamant, the maiden knight, the lover of Ruggiero, in just revenge. But the reason and the manner of it must be put aside. Suffice it to say that Pinabello had been chased by Bradamant from the gates of his own castle, and forced to fight to the death and the horse that he rode had in truth been stolen from Bradamant after, as he hoped, he had led her into a fatal snare. But of these things Zerbino knew nothing, and he sought for the supposed murderers, but sought in vain. In the meantime, Gabrina was left with the dead body, and being filled with greedy avarice, she stripped from the body a belt bedecked with gold and jewels, and hid it under her gaudy dress and gladly would she have stolen all the costly armour, but knew not how to conceal the theft from the Honourable Zerbino, whom she heard returning from his fruitless pursuit. The evening was now coming on, and he bade the old woman follow him in search of a resting-place for the night, and after long wandering they came in sight of a stately castle, which proved to be the castle of Anselmo, the father of Pinabello, and at the gates there was a great turmoil of people crying out in mourning and lamentations, with old Anselmo in the midst. And when Zerbino asked the cause, he was told that a messenger had just arrived with the report that Pinabello, the son of the Castellan, had been found murdered. And it came into the thought of the Scottish knight that surely this was the man he had found dead and soon after the body was brought on a bier of branches to the feet of the old man, and it was the same. And bitterly the old man wept for his only son, for, wicked himself, he had loved also the wickedness of his son, and he began to offer great treasure to any who would discover the slayer. And here Gabrina saw a chance to satisfy both greed and revenge, and she drew from its hiding-place the golden belt, and in rapid words accused Zerbino of the murder, and confirmed her tale by showing the belt which, said she, he had stripped from the dead and given to her. And forthwith the unhappy Zerbino was seized before he knew the wicked guile of the old woman, and he was put into a loathsome cell until the morning. And at break of day he was taken out and pinioned and placed on a lowly steed, under a strong guard of men-at-arms, and surrounded by a large concourse of people, he was being led away to the place where they had found the dead Pinabello, in order that he might be tortured and hanged on the very spot of the crime. But here the example of the divine poet must be followed, and Zerbino left to his fate, whilst the thread of the story of Isabella is again captured and pursued. After Orlando had rescued Isabella from the cave, and had hanged the remnant of the outlaws, he took her in his charge with the most honourable courtesy, and for a time they journeyed in the forest, seeking food and shelter from the country folk. And early one morning they came in sight of the castle of Anselmo, and looking down from a little hill, they saw in an open space a vast concourse of people, and in the midst a young man fast bound on a horse, with head cast down as if in prayer. As soon as Orlando saw the crowd with the prisoner, he bade Isabella stay, 
and he rode at speed to discover the cause of the tumultuous gathering. And when he came near to the prisoner, by the first glance he knew at once that he was a noble knight, and, pressing through the populace and the guards, he asked the young man why he was so evilly handled. Now none knew Orlando, but though they knew him not, so imposing was the black knight that the crowd and the guards held back as the prisoner told his tale, how he had been falsely accused by the wicked Gabrina of the death of Pinabello, and was even then being led to torture and death. And Orlando read the truth in his eyes, and well he knew also that Pinabello had merited long since death by violence, though he knew not the doom of justice had been given by his kinswoman, Bradamant. And needless to say, the tale was told in few words, but soon Orlando had heard enough, and in a loud voice he demanded the instant release of the captive. But the soldiers of the guard, seeing only one man, jeered at Orlando, and one of them, who had clad himself in the armour stripped from Zerbino, and trusted in his strength, struck at Orlando with his sword. Then was the wrath of the paladin kindled, and he drew Durindana, and rode upon the guards, and the crowd, and those he did not slay he drove headlong in flight, and suffered not one of them to escape to the castle. And then Orlando released the pinioned captive from his bonds, and he helped him to put on again his armour, which they stripped from the slain guard. And when Isabella saw that the fray was ended, she rode down from the hill, and when she was far off, Zerbino knew her, though long he had mourned her as lost in the shipwreck. And at first sight, his heart became as cold as if he had seen a ghost. And then a joyful rush of blood dyed his cheek, and he longed to rush to meet her and clasp her to his breast. But in a moment his heart again grew cold as ice, for he thought that surely the maiden had given her love to the knight who had just saved him from death and now it seemed to him more bitter to think she should lie living in the arms of another than dead in the depths of the sea. Had any other knight taken his love, he would have fought him to the death, but for the man who had just saved his life, the heart of Zerbino had no room for anything but gratitude and knightly worship. And quickly was ended the conflict of his feelings, and he let fall his visor before Isabella could see his face and the two knights and the lady rode away through the forest. At length they came to a stream of clear water in pleasant shade, and Orlando laid aside his helmet and entreated Zerbino to do likewise. And Zerbino, hoping against hope, assented. And as soon as Isabella saw his face, she saw nothing else, and she fell on his neck and kissed him on the lips, with tears and laughter, and the wordless murmurs of love. And when the lovers got back their senses, and saw the trees, and the stream, and Orlando, in hurried words Isabella began to tell Zerbino how she had been rescued by Orlando from the outlaws. And Zerbino knelt before him, and with knightly reverence showed him the utmost gratitude. But Orlando, as was his custom, made light of his own part, and rejoiced in the meeting of the lovers. And suddenly there broke into the midst of all this happiness a new discord, for there came riding by the riverside a knight in jewelled armour 
and a lady richly dressed, and the knight was Mandricardo, and the lady Doralis. As soon as Mandricardo saw the black armour of Orlando, and marked his noble strength, he cried to him, At last, the knight I have sought for days, your black armour shows it, and your bold bearing. You are the knight, and your arm alone destroyed the company of Norizia, and the company of Tremizen, and now with me you must fight to the death. But when Orlando looked at the arms of his opponent, he saw that he had neither sword nor battle-axe, but only a lance, and he said to him, How can we fight to the death, if at the first charge you break your lance? Look to yourself, said the Tartar, with this lance alone will I fight, for when I gained these arms, which were first worn by Hector of Troy, the sword only was wanting, and I vowed to wear no sword until I had taken Hector's by force from Orlando. With this sword, and with treachery, Orlando slew my father Agrican. Then Orlando broke in. No, that I am Orlando, and in fair fight I killed your father, and this is my sword, Durindana, justly mine, and it shall be yours if you can take it in fight, but no vantage will I take and instantly he took the sword and hung it on a tree. Then the two knights rode apart about half a bow-shot, and turning, charged, and each of them aimed at the helmet, and the lance of each was shivered, but neither knight gave way to the shock. Again they rode apart, though nothing remained for battle but the truncheons of their shattered lances, and again they met, and four times they struck with the truncheons of the lances, until they were broken close to the wrist. Then, with nothing left but gauntlets, each tried to drag the other from his horse. The Tartar, with both hands, seized Orlando, but firm he stayed in the saddle. And Orlando, gripping the bridle of his enemy, tried to force back his horse, and the bridle was torn away. And at last, though Orlando kept his seat, the girth broke, and he was suddenly thrown, and at the same time the Tartar's horse, freed from its bridle and maddened with the struggle, rushed away on a forest path, and when Doralis saw her champion carried away, fearful to be left alone, she followed on her palfrey. In vain Mandricardo tried to check his steed with soft words and heavy blows. Nothing could stop its mad career until man and horse were brought down by chance, and both being unhurt, the Tartar seized the mane, but knew not how to ride back to the fight without a bridle. Then Doralis came up and urged him to take her bridle, and said her palfrey needed only voice or touch. But though Mandricardo was eager for battle and raging with anger, he thought it unworthy to take his lady's bridle. And suddenly their perplexity was ended, and their trouble turned to laughter, for there appeared riding up the forest path Gabrina, sallow and wrinkled, but dressed in all the finery of Pinabello's wanton lady. And on the instant the Tartar seized the palfrey of the old woman, took off the bridle, and with a cry such as the beast had never heard, sent it terrified through the wilds of the forest, with Gabrina clinging to the mane. In the meantime, Orlando had made shift to repair the broken harness, and awaited the return of his enemy. 
but at length he thought it better to pursue than to wait longer, and he took a friendly farewell of the lovers, and he besought Zerbino, if the Tartar should return, to say to him that he would wait at hand for three days, and thereafter return to the camp of Shalman. But as it chanced in the windings of the forest paths, Orlando missed the Tartar chief, and lost his way in trying to return, and after long wandering he came to the scene where, as already told, it had been destined that he should fall into his madness for the loss of Angelica. After Orlando had left the lovers, they rode slowly away, and they had not gone far before they saw coming to meet them a prisoner with hands tied behind him, mounted on a lowly steed, and on either side a knight fully armed. And as they looked, they knew the prisoner for the false Orderico, who had betrayed his trust with sin added to sin. And in the guarding knights, they recognized the good Almonio and Corebo, and after most kindly greetings, Almonio told his story, how after he had returned with help from Rochelle, he had found Corebo lying wounded, and from him he had heard of the treachery of Orderico and his pursuit of Isabella. Far and wide he had searched, hoping to come to her aid, but in vain, and at last he had come back to the helpless Corebo, and had him conveyed back to the city, where in time he had been healed of his wounds. And after his wounds were well healed, the two had sought for the traitor Odorico, and at last he had been found in the court of King Alfonso. And Almonio had told all the story of the treachery to the king, and the truth was put to the ordeal of battle. And when, by the justice of God, Almonio had conquered, the king had given him Odorico as a prisoner, to be taken for judgment to Zerbino. Such was the story. And Zerbino looked steadfastly at Orderico. Little he felt of hatred or of anger, but much he grieved that one he had taken for a friend should have proved so false. And sadly he questioned the prisoner how he could have broken his loyalty to prince and friend. And Orderico, in reply, showed still more clearly the baseness of his spirit, and he whined of fate, and temptation, and God, and the devil, and old friendship, and new repentance. And the mind of the ever-generous Zerbino was tossed this way and that, to let him go free, or to end the traitor's life by the traitor's death. And whilst the judge was still unresolved, judgment came riding out of the forest in the guise of Gabrina, whose palfrey, tired with its wild rush, had heard the other horses, and came back to join them, with the helpless old woman on its back. And Zerbino caught the horse, and he was so angered with Gabrina, that almost he had persuaded himself to give her to a cruel death. But again his generosity prevailed. And turning to Orderico, he said, I will set you free, but on one condition. You must swear by your strongest oath, that for one year... You will guard this woman with your life, and do everything that she orders or wishes. Then he made him take the most solemn oath, and vowed that if in one tittle he failed, he should die the death. And before the end of the first day, the traitor Orderico had broken his oath, and had hanged Gabrina on an elm tree. And in spite of his cunning, before the year had passed, 
he had himself suffered the same fate at the hands of Olmonio. When Zerbino had passed his judgment on the pair of traitors, he sent his two trusty followers back to the camp of Charlemagne with a message to his company, but he himself remained on the watch for the return of Orlando, who had promised not to go back to the camp for three days, in hope of renewing his fight with the Tartar. And Isabella refused to leave her newly found love, and stayed with him awaiting Orlando. As time passed, and he did not return, they followed the path on which he had ridden away, and made inquiries of all they met, but heard nothing. And at last they came to the grotto which had seen the loves of Angelica and Medoro, and the oncoming of the madness of Orlando. And they wondered when they found the beautiful fountain filled with stones and mud, and all around the trees broken and torn, as if by raging beasts. And looking about, Zerbino saw in the brushwood a gleam of metal, and lo! It was the black cuirass of Orlando. Then at a distance he found the helmet. Then he heard the neighing of a courser nearby, and it was Brilliadoro, Orlando's horse, with empty saddle and loosened reins. And searching further, they found the mighty sword, Durindana, which had passed from hero to hero, cast aside in the tangle like a thing worn out. And next, scattered about like leaves driven by the wind, they saw the shreds of the surcoat that Orlando had torn to pieces. And as they wondered and questioned, and never found an answer, there came running up a countryman with pale face and frightened look, and he told them how from the safety of a lofty rock he had seen the madness of the night, first turned on himself, and then on the trees and rocks, and then on men and cattle. And Zerbino even then could hardly believe that the glorious Orlando should have so fallen into sheer madness. And with care he got together all the arms and the famous sword, and Isabella helped him in the sorrowful gathering. And Zerbino took the arms and the sword and hung them in open view on the branch of a tree. And lest any stranger should think he had come on a treasure trove, he cut into the bark beneath the words, These are the arms of Orlando and he thought this name was of itself a sufficient protection. And he hoped that in time Orlando would lose his madness and come in search of his great sword. But hardly had Zerbino finished his task and mounted his horse, when there came on the scene fierce Mandricardo, with Doralis riding by his side. And as soon as the Tartar chief saw the arms so curiously suspended, he asked the meaning, and Zerbino told him all he knew. And when Mandricardo heard that this was indeed the famous Durindana left by Orlando, he was overjoyed, and quickly riding up to the tree, he seized the sword and said, This sword is mine, and long ago was it gifted to me, when I won the rest of Hector's armour, but it was stolen away by Orlando, and now it is mine and he brandished it, and glorying in his strength and good fortune, he cried out, In fear of me has Orlando left this sword, and in fear of me has feigned this madness. And Zerbino was deeply angered, and drawing his sword, smote at the Tartar, and in a moment they were engaged in a fierce battle. In courage and in knightly skill they were well matched, but Mandricardo was of greater strength, and he was clad in the impenetrable arms of Hector, 
and on his head wore the helm which no sword could cleave, and in his hand he now held Durindana, which no armour could withstand. And well Zerbino knew that if the Tartar could give one full blow with this matchless sword, he was a dead man, and therefore he tried in every way to elude the strength of his enemy, and by more speedy movements to take him undefended in some joint of the armour. But in spite of all his care and quickness, seven times Zerbino failed to get beyond the reach of the terrible blade, and seven times he was wounded. Still strong in spirit, though weakened by loss of blood, Zerbino darted in and out, and struck with futile skill and force at the impenetrable armour of Mandricardo. And when Isabella saw the blood staining his cuirass, and ever spreading, she could no longer restrain her tears, and she conquered her pride, and entreated Doralis to aid her to stop the fight. And Doralis gladly yielded to the request, and her Tartar lord yielded to her, and Zerbino listened to the pleading of Isabella, and gave up the unequal fight. And peace having been made, Zerbino and Isabella rode away from the fatal grove, and much Zerbino grieved that the great sword must be left with the Tartar chief. But not far had the wounded knight ridden when he could ride no more for weakness, and in his veins he felt the creeping in of death. And on the bank of a friendly stream he dropped down from his horse and lay panting beside the clear, peaceful water. And Isabella gently raised his head, and with love he turned his dying eyes to hers. And tenderly she held the dear head, and helplessly she looked round for succour, but not a voice was heard but the voices of the forest. And numbed by despair, she took away the blood-stained helmet, and smoothed the fair locks, and wiped away the drops of agony. And her dying lover roused himself, and spoke in feeble voice, and closely she bent her ear, lest one sound should be lost. And he whispered to her, My only treasure, my heart's love, I care not for death, but to leave you here alone with no one to aid you, that is heavy. If only I could live so long as to see you in safety, then I could die in peace, die content on your breast. But now, worse than death, or anything that death can bring, is leaving you. And Isabella wept without restraint and kissed his paling lips, and she murmured to him, Think not, love of my heart, that you shall go away alone on the long journey. My spirit shall go with yours, and once your eyes are closed, I too will take my leave of life, and together we will seek the other world. With your sword will I open the way of death, and I hope someone may pass by and take pity on our bodies and bury them together. She ended and felt with her hands his life ebbing away, and she caught with her lips the dying breath, and with a last effort her lover spoke. Oh, my love, loved in death as in life, for my sake you left home and country, for my love you have given all. And with all my love I charge you, I command you, do not die, but never forget that my love was the greatest love a man may have. And with a prayer for her safety, the life of the young warrior flickered away. 
and upon Isabella there came the madness of grief, and she gave herself to sorrow in utter abandonment. She threw herself on her dead hero, and gathered him to her breast, and bathed his face with her tears. And then she rose up and cried out in wild words, and in her anguish beat her breast and tore her hair. And unmindful of her lover's last command, she thought to fall upon his sword. But there came to her succour a holy man, who had grown old in the solitudes of the forest, and he comforted her with the comfort of true religion, and showed her the way of eternal life. And after long communing, he made her put away the thought of refuge in death, and she vowed she would give herself to the services of God, and be a Christian as Zerbino had been. But even in her surrender, she would not leave the memory of her life, nor would she part from his dead body. And with the aid of the hermit she placed the body on the war-horse. Then the holy man led her to a friendly castle, and they embalmed the body and placed it in a black coffin. After many days of watching and grieving, Isabella got back her shattered strength, and she set out with the hermit to find a resting-place for herself and her dead. And he told her that hard by Marseilles was a holy house, very spacious and richly endowed, where lived a company of noble women who had given themselves to God and his charity. And thither they journeyed with the coffin under a black pall on the saddened war-horse of the dead knight, and they passed through a country smitten by war and devastation, and they kept as well as they might to forest paths and byways, for they feared the lawlessness of misery." and they had almost reached the house of their refuge, when they were met by the lord of war and destruction, the cruel Rodomont. End of chapter 8